What's a day without sunshine? What's a wedding without drunken uncles? What's an episode of Foul Mouths Podcast without swearing? Thanks to this introduction, you'll never have to fucking find out. Foul Mouths Podcast, it's about birds. For this week's episode, Heather and Sean shot the shit with Craig Repass, outgoing president of the New Haven Bird Club. They talked about the origins and history of the club, the bird atlas, what it is, how to use it, and how to contribute, and about his work with Mountain Bird Watch through the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. So if you want to find out what the fuck that means, you should definitely keep listening. My wife says it's like pulling a string on one of those yeah. dolls that somebody just has to pull my string and I just go. <laughs> I noticed that in the email he forwarded us. It's I was like, it seems like he has a lot to say. This is good. Yeah, we were excited about it. You were like... You were already you... ranting in yeah. the email. So I was like, all right, all right. This yeah, is going to be yeah, a lot more... You... The, the president of the New Haven Bird Club is going to be a little bit more interesting than Tore I... down the baby boomers right off the bat. It was good, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, could please pull, we'll pull the string. Go, go, go for it, man! Like uh, Craig, Craig Repaz, new president of the New Haven Bird Club. I'm outgoing, 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 outgoing. But just you know, we'll equally that. as important. <laughs> yeah, I was on for four years, and uh, fortunately, we have a constitution and bylaws that limits how long somebody's going to serve. And you see this issue with some of these other uh, nonprofits around here, especially with birding and conservation, is that <laughs> they don't have a clause in their constitution bylaws that limits presidency. Uh, so these people are, are there for life, and you, you wow. see that they're tired. <laughs> they, they like to move on, but they can't find somebody to replace them. So, so you're, yeah. how does what is the uh, like the how does the hierarchy break down for you guys? Is it passed down? Do you choose your successor? Like, how does that work? Um, is there like an anointment? Unite <laughs> you know, people. <laughs> yeah, there's no Game of Thrones type thing happening here. <laughs> no um, sorting hat. <laughs> no, no sorting hat. I think you you get tagged and uh, and you kind of default to it. Unfortunately, ah. uh, there's sorry to it. No contested elections. Basically, uh, if there's a nominating chair or the board, they say this is our slate of characters or, or candidates mm -hmm. and everybody says yay but i've never seen it contested sure. it's because it's a matter of who wants to volunteer to be president who wants to be secretary or whatever yeah. so it's really an uncontested election That's and I, I i see that a lot coa operates right. the same way can you run again uh i think i would have to wait a few years wow. if i'm not crazy um, so you can't do it like two terms in a row i did do term, oh you two, did I, yeah it's it's a, it's a two year term and oh. i did uh twice in a row oh. on like the third or fourth president in the history of the club to do that you know they usually serve for two years and and then they're out doing something else oh. it's a long running history too the new haven bird club is the oldest bird club in america correct i don't it's one of the oldest one of the oldest um we started in 1907 uh, so at that time, Mass Audubon had already been started. I believe Connecticut um, Audubon uh, had already started. You know, we okay. outdate the uh, Hartford Audubon by a year or Ooh. two. So that's wow. that's some bragging Take rights. Take that, Hartford. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like uh, when th when this happened, there were a lot of clubs, birding clubs, starting up in the United States okay. uh, at the last, like in the 1890s and uh, first decade of the 1900s was that the naturalist movement yes it was um yes yeah, it's, it's a 
it's interesting that you asked because I um, big history buff just I wrote am. a wrote a history on, on the club that's supposed to go into a book that should be coming out about uh, the, the history of the club. Just a really oh, cool. small circulation with that uh, small oh, cool. printing. Um, yeah, it was a naturalist movement, but at first um, the ornithological association uh, AOU you probably have seen their abbreviations uh, they got started but those were a bunch of stodgy old men <laughs> their idea of it's birding, a long history of stodgy old men yeah a lot of stodgy old men but these were stodgy old men with shotguns yeah so <laughs> well <laughs> again what's really no I'm <laughs> yeah white men with shotguns watch out um but yeah, they, they did a, a lot as far as our understanding of birds, but their approach when you have threats on the habitat and then you had the women in their fashion with the feathers. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was total carnage for a lot of our birds. Mm. Um, and these old men were, were fighting. You know, they did not want to lose their favorite taxidermists. So they were not getting on board with this movement to, to stop this feather trade. Um, there was an attempt at the Audubon. Um, George Bird Grinnell, I think it was, he went through Yale, oddly enough, and mm -hmm. really fascinating guy. He almost was with uh, Custer, a little bighorn, but he opted out because he wanted to finish his PhD study at Yale. <laughs> so the, um, he started the first attempt at an Audubon, but it didn't do, go very well. They started to run bankrupt, and it w was a woman. Um, Harriet Hemingway up in Massachusetts who okay. was reading about this carnage that I have to do something about it hmm. so this is a woman being inspired and she in a very short period of time got the Mass Audubon together mm. but unfortunately back then women didn't have the right to vote so there was a lot of these organizations that started to pop up because of this outrage but they still needed men to front the organizations right. because they still right. had a ways to go to wow. be right. equal citizens yeah. and, right, right. and still to be honest you still yeah we still have a ways to go yeah there. yeah <laughs> you know, we talk about changing uh, calling them freshmen and things like that sorted past to live <laughs> live so, again so. so mass audubon um they got started and then you saw this naturalist movement where yeah. people were thinking okay maybe we could start to learn to appreciate birds using binoculars and things <laughs> like that and actually the first really good bird guide was written by a woman called birding through opera glasses oh and she put wow. that together like what are some of the field marks some a lot of people think it was uh, Roger Tory Peterson, but that was predated by this the woman's book. It's a common theme in all, in a lot of like scientific observation and 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 like writing and things like that throughout academia. It's like, well, it was actually a woman, but uh, a, a man had to be on the, the letterhead, or a, he had to, yeah. you know, it had yeah. to be the the lead author on a paper, regardless of who whose discoveries. And they eventually just get run out of history because it's always the lead author that stays on mm -hmm. the paper, right? right. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, Crick and Watson, famous story there. Right. So it's un unbelievable that it has literally hasn't almost hasn't changed at Not all. Not really hasn't. <laughs> yeah, we're in a lot of ways. But it's um, nice to see that a lot of the birding organizations do see that women were at the heart of it. You know, yeah. when New Haven Bird Club first started, once once we were formed. The women were going to the different hat shops in New Haven oh, saying, wow. please stop, please stop. At the same time, there's a handful of high school students that were um, going into Edgewood Park 
to patrol because we did not have the, the Migratory Bird Act mm -hmm. or treaty at that time. So there was really no laws to prevent the hunting of songbirds. Wow. And they were blaming the Italian immigrants that were uh, just coming into New Haven. Here to we build go again. Yale. History yeah. repeating itself. <laughs> it's like it, we have decimating bird populations because of immigrants. Right. right. You know, and uh, it's always. I read that in, in some of our um, minutes and uh, old writings that are in our archives. That wow. Probably they're blaming immigrants. No. So that so it was a uh, a handful of guys that were uh, down in Edgewood, making sure that the immigrants weren't eating the songbirds. Wow! Oh, wow. But it's um, interesting because of this this theme that uh, that you've talked about as far as how do you reach the youth? But yeah. the history of the New Haven Bird Club, we actually started with a handful of young guys that wow. were high school. And some of them went to Yale, then they became soldiers in World War One, and some of them were still around through the 50s. Wow. It's rather, rather interesting. Uh, they first started doing the Christmas bird count, which started in 1900. Right. And they were birding some of these areas, and there's like four of these, uh, four or five of these guys um, that actually had some constitution and bylaws for the New Haven Bird Club that predates the actual New Haven Bird Club. Wow. Mm. Then they got some women involved. They got some um, huh. a, an ornithologist. Uh, he was a, a medical doctor becoming an ornithologist uh, bishop. And so he got a really good mix of all the elements of the birding movement at that time That's that became the New Haven Bird Club, which wow. is rather interesting. Wow. That's cool. So it was it was it was driven by by the youth then, but then at some point youth become old stodgy white men, yeah. <laughs> with binoculars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt like um, at a certain point in time, like the naturalist movement turned into okay, so we've got all these laws on book, and then and then a lot of focus came off, and then we started exploiting natural resources and in, in in great ways all over again, mm -hmm. and it's it's like a cyclical thing, mm -hmm. and I. I think we're uh, at this point where people might be a little bit fed up with that that st that typical cycle, and I'm hope I'm hoping because <laughs> we really need it to be that way. Um, well, I'm I'm old enough to remember the first Green Up Day, you know, the first Earth Day where yeah. we we're out. You know, I'm from Northern Vermont. We're out on this dirt road picking up Schlitz bottles yeah, and cans and garbage and stuff that's just on the side of these back roads. You know, picking up all the stuff and. This movement was underway, and yep. we had the Nixon administration that signed the EPA into <laughs> existence. Yep. Yep. You know the Clean Water Act, yep. the Clean Air Act, because our fire, our rivers were on fire. Yeah, of course. And yeah. so, it's like it had to get that bad, and then for whatever reason, you had these baby boomers then that were driving this. You know, they were protesting the Vietnam War. They were environmentalists, and then all of a sudden, they became like in the eighties. You're your day traders yeah. and, and all that. So I don't know what happened and why they forgot all that. And at that time, it really was broken down according to where the politician was from. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I became really interested in environmental issues with the acid rain because it's starting to deforest New England and pickle the lakes. And at one point, you would have politicians that could be Republicans thinking this is going to destroy our economy that is based on on outdoor recreation. And f for whatever reason, I may be wrong on this, that it was under Reagan where they said, okay, we're going to fight 
this acid rain thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to say it needs more research. And then, then you started seeing the environmentalism become quite campy. It became Democrat versus Republican, mm-hmm. even though you had West Virginia Democrats saying, no, we don't want to do anything to curtail our coal sure. uh, mining. So, you know, we're not going to stop this. Well, it's all relevant to the situation you're in, right? It's like relative at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like if, if if there's like a large population of impoverished folk in your region, of course, you don't want to take jobs away. And if the jobs are in the coal mines, any good politician sees that you can't, you know, you can't take mm-hmm. jobs from the people, your constituents and, and all that, right? So I guess it's it's tough when it's like when we're dealing with these small like micro economies and these regions that... We, we could be big in voting turnout and it, and it, you know it's we have but yeah. we're at this point now we're global we're, we're at least in, nationally we've i think it, we're starting to see a little bit of uh, uh unionizing across party lines for as in terms of uh natural resources and stuff mm-hmm. like that but i don't know what do you think like i know you're in conservation actively uh, what are you seeing and um it's really a- when it comes to bird conservation, the most important aspect is habitat, protecting mm-hmm. the habitat, because if you don't protect habitat, you're not going to have birds. They need a place to breed. They need a place to uh, migrate to yep. and migrate through. And if you can't protect that, you're not going to have birds. Sure. Um, and the reason why birds are so important is because they're extremely visible. So they could be an indicator species for a lot of sensitive habitat. Sure. You know, we're watching the salt marsh sparrow here along the coast, and we could see, I could live to see that species go extinct. Yeah. I know my son, I know you probably will see that species go extinct. Yeah. Uh, this is because of the loss of habitat and rising sea, sea levels. Yeah. And, you know, people say, oh, no, the sea levels aren't rising. Well, tell no, that to I, the salt marsh sparrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been, we've been witnessing it here in Long Island Sound. Yeah, Hammond uh, Asset, that's that population there. Mm-hmm. It's just smaller every year. Yep. It, it's, it's really sad. And they have no place to go. These yeah. these marshes aren't going to go any place because we have them encapsulated. We have it sealed off by either the railroad or developments and, and all of this. All these fake beaches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And so, you know, for the longest time, we were looking at these salt marshes thinking, oh, this is just wasteland mm-hmm. or this is a place to build um, for the mosquitoes to breed. So during the yeah. 30s, the CCC was going in to trench up all of these. You know, so that's why we have this network of uh, channels all over our salt marshes. That's mm-hmm. unreal. But, yeah. The, scar- yeah we... the scars of the past there. Yeah. And now it's interesting just just with the return of the osprey in Connecticut, like how dramatic it's been. Because I I came to New Haven maybe like uh, 11 years ago, and I never really noticed osprey around. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a birder then, but you kind of, I mean, I lived in East Rock. Like okay. I lived right by where they always are um, fishing, and I never really saw them. And then I could see a few, and now it's, you can't go like five minutes without seeing one flying yeah, around with a yeah. fish and it, and we went um my husband and i one one time went behind a target in north haven the tidal trail yeah uh-huh. and it's just there was just dozens of osprey um all around 
it's important, like, you know, we're just talking about the salt marsh sparrow and how many people going to have an asset are going to stop on that boardwalk and look at a salt marsh sparrow. Mm-hmm. But when you have something like one of these marquee species, like an osprey, right. that's so damn loud. Yeah, and, and they're, big. they're everywhere. And it's like, wow, look at the size of that fish he has yeah. or she has. You know, that, that's very visible. And yeah. people see this return because of banning of DDT. Yeah. Now, we're also now in another fight to help save the osprey. And that's with uh, fishing regulations and making yes. sure our forage fish are protected. Yes. So um, it's a matter of protecting things at a very fundamental level in the ecosystem. Yeah. Itty bitty fish that nobody really cares about unless you're a bird and you're trying to raise your, your fledglings. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, even I'm pretty guilty. I'm a bad birder when it comes to sparrows. <laughs> I mean, that's like a popular opinion. Yeah. Small brown birds that are I'm hard like, to identify. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Well, the, at least with salt marsh sparrows, they have sound like little robots. So it's <laughs> like you know they're around when you do hear them. Or maybe it's a seaside sparrow, which is even wor- worse off realistically than the salt marsh sparrows right now, right? The seasides are, yeah, seem to be even more diminished. I think the dusky seaside is maybe extinct or considered extinct or on its way out. I would have to check that. Yeah. Glad we have time to <laughs> fact check our yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what we're saying here. There's a lot of sad to see that and the nelsons too i guess would it realistically any of them that are in that that yeah that sort of uh, yeah it's environment. all it's, it's all being affected yeah but you know on one hand into this increase in hurricanes and the idea that these barrier islands and marshes are wonderful buffers that people could start yeah. to see habitat restored now I have a great uh, idea that's extremely radical <laughs> is that if somebody who has beachfront property has their property destroyed the insurance company indemnifies you said sorry it's time for you to move on you can't build here again. Yeah. So you know why are we going to keep paying it's you know in, uh, assuming this risk or underwriting this risk for you to live here and it's unsustainable. So gradually yeah. after each loss you have more and more well, you're habitat. seeing that with the fires in California. Mm-hmm. You're seeing like some insurance companies are no longer going to cover people who yeah. live in in certain areas where it's it's fire yeah. prone. There are flood zones yeah. in the South too, where people like the insurance companies won't touch you. And at that point, there's those neighborhoods yeah. just sort of slowly go back to nature, which is kind of nice. It's it's, it's kind of shitty to think about the fact that like <laughs> a lot of the salvation for these uh, habitats are based on insurance companies saying sorry, yeah. well, we'll cover you. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, it's good. It's just... great. I think it's a. I think it's a great idea. I I would. I don't want to walk around in the dunes and have to deal with like, mm-hmm. you know, you see all sorts of weird things. Milford Point is a good good place to look at. Milford Point. There's all those condos and all those homes that extend way beyond Milford Point. I see people like sunbathing nude there and all sorts of stuff where there's summer camps and all that stuff, like this enrichment happening. And, and there's peeps like it, yeah, running around. Yeah, they don't even know yeah. that. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard. I mean, they're just, and, and, but they're, you're seeing all of these people are leaving, like coming down to visit for the summer and renting these houses yeah. and mm-hmm. leaving so much trash yeah. everywhere. Yeah, trash Not and the, the dogs running. Done. Like right the now dogs. there are volunteers along the coast of Connecticut making sure that oyster catcher chicks yeah. and piping plover chicks aren't going to be eaten by somebody's dog who's off the leash. Yeah. Like, oh, my dog won't do this. Well, they do do it. They, All dogs. You won't even see it because the peep is so small half the time. Like, yeah. you wouldn't even see it until it's too late. Yeah. yeah. 
and a dog could swallow that. In a peep. heartbeat. Yeah, it makes it sound like it's one of those Easter peeps. If they tasted like an Easter yeah. marshmallow peep, they would be protected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody did it. Absolutely true. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely 100% true. <laughs> Must yeah. protect the, the sweet-tasting birds. <laughs> no, but that, that's uh, In conservation, that's one of the huge, huge balances. It's like people feel they have a right to recreate, but then we have to protect yeah. our, our wild our wildlife we yeah. have to protect our wilderness and that's one of those balancing acts that uh some of these state agencies when i say state i mean federal and state agencies what they have to do you see this in the national parks where they'll shut down areas sorry this is for the wildlife that's breeding here and you're not going to go in there and bother and upset it yeah and, and they will shut down um also with like Stuart b mckinney there's areas that are shut down yeah now, you could go around uh, Faulkner Island on a boat, but you can't step foot on it. Yep. There's interns there right now doing a lot of work, but they don't want to have a lot of traffic there to upset the turn colony. Sure. And, you know, the even nesting, uh, rock nesting species, climbing areas get closed constantly. Mm-hmm. And, like, some of the best climbing areas are <laughs> shut down in prime climbing season because peregrines or, you know, mostly it's the peregrines. Yeah. But I, th- I guess I would think goshawks as well are would shut something like that down and things like that so uh goshawks from my understanding they're tree nesters but goshawks will attack people and i've heard in the white mountains where they've had to close down a trail because there's a goshawk ripping up people's scalps whoa (laughs) Um, i've heard tales of mountain bikers getting uh hit in the helmet like not knowing what happened and it's just this goshawk is like tapping him in the helmet because they're Hot in like Super higher elevation, aggro. yeah, it's pretty funny. There, that's like how you know for sure that there's a goshawk around is because it hits you in the head. That's Whoa. like the story I've heard. <laughs> Easy breeding code to yeah. record for your Atlas yeah. block. <laughs> yeah, wear helmet, ride through the woods, see what happens. Wow. Um, um, yeah. I'm so I I have a question. I don't even know if it's it's not really technically on the list, but like I'm I, I'm kind of confused how the CT Bird Atlas works. Oh, good question. How does it work? Um, <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, bird atlasing really ties into uh, the all-important citizen science mm-hmm. category, which got started with the Christmas bird counts where people will go out and just record everything that they see. Now, atlasing is a bit like that. However, there's a protocol where We've divided the state up into about 650 blocks or something like that. And everybody, we want to get people out to say they'll adopt a block. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean that no one else could go birding on that. It just means we okay. have somebody on the hook to say they're going to, the next three years, spend 20 hours surveying that block. 20 hours within a year or 20, 20 hours? hours over a three-year period. Okay. Which is nothing. Nothing. Right. It's, it's right. nothing. It's not. Um, <laughs> But the, when you're atlasing, it really requires you to really slow down. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, tip mouse, and, and, and move on, which most of us do. You know, we try to dismiss it when we hear it because it's the loudest thing in the woods yeah. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but you need to stop and look and say, is this tip mouse? Is it nesting? How do I know it's nesting? Is it just singing on territory? Or am I watching it um, carrying nesting material, or is it nesting food, or did I find the nest, the hole? you got to stop and start to look at its behavior. So it's a different uh, nuance to birding, which is great because 
we have these things called safe dates where we just want to make sure that the birds migrating through Connecticut are done, that they've moved through or they've settled down. And, and that May is obviously our spring migration. We're having one hell of a migration. Yeah. Are, yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. So all these people reporting um, black-throated green warblers yeah. or, or bay-breasted, these, these birds, they don't necessarily nest here. So we've right. got to make sure that that cloud of birds are through us, and then we settle down to the nesting territory. Okay. Um, so that's basically how it, how it works. So uh, people are encouraged to use eBird or old-fashioned um, data sheets that they could print off from the Internet and fill it out and submit it. And then on eBird, it's just adding CT Bird Atlas to the yep. list? You know, it's nice in the notes to say what block you're in. And, oh, okay. And record uh, the behaviors that you saw. Okay, good to know. Because I've just, all I was like, Sean, how do I do it? And you're like, oh, just add CT Bird Atlas. And I wasn't sure what right, else. Right, but, but you, you need should to. Should add the block. Yeah. I figured that you would get the, the yeah. block data from where I, the spot. One one could, oftentimes. It's more work. Uh, it, it's a little bit more work. There's some, uh, there's some downfalls to it. When you're using eBird to have that map trace your route as opposed to saying that you're in a hot spot uh-huh. because you could be in one block and the hot spot you've identified with is is in another block yeah. Yeah. So everything you see goes to that other block yeah yeah so, east rocks the challenge you have to be conscious of the boundaries because right. it, it's broken up into uh, what two or three different blocks uh, two two different blocks mm-hmm. wow. so the the technically the museum is in a different block than the rest of the park correct oh. yeah i believe so uh, I'd have to pull up my map. I think that's how it works. I that sounds. I rem, I mean, when I was looking at what my block was, because we have an eastern screech owl that's around our our house, and so I was trying to figure. And when I was at um, a birding event, someone said to make sure I put it on the CT Bird Atlas, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I ever even heard of it. And I've been birding <laughs> for years, you know. And so I was like, okay, well, and also I don't want to say it's my backyard. Right. right, right. A so, lot of it's it's wise to hide your owl sightings. That too. Roosting. You know, there's a way to do it um, on eBird where you're not reporting your your exact location, or you just submit a paper form and keep that under wraps. Yeah. So the data will be reported for the atlas, but your exact spot, like what you would get with eBird. It's a. I have a. There's a close hot spot. <laughs> But people don't know exactly where I where I am. Yeah, we'll keep we'll keep the don't we'll dox keep the location, me. yeah, under wraps. Yeah. So um, it's um, this atlas is beefed up more than traditional atlases. That there are technicians out who will do abundance counts because with a, a block adopter, it's yes or no. Is the bird there? Is it nesting? Yes or yes or no. However, with uh, people doing these transect surveys, they are counting the number of birds that they're encountering, both on migration during the breeding season. Um, I think we had some winter people doing it also. We're also asking people to get out during the winter so we have an understanding of what um, is happening in in the state during the wintertime. And all of this is, all this data is going to go into some pretty fancy modeling you know, using uh, GIS and habitat sure. layers. So 
uh, this is going to be a very powerful tool for people doing planning, you know, like a land trust and right. towns and um, governments to say, okay, what type of habitat is there? What type of birds do we expect? Do we have a lot of this habitat type? Sure. And so in, in the future, all we need to do is like go out and do some confirmation surveys as opposed to a whole atlas work again. Does the Connecticut atlas... Uh, share data and things like that with the with other states north. I know New York is starting their atlas this year. Yes. And Maine last year started their atlas or the yes. year before. And, and Massachusetts has finished up their second or third. Rhode Island is finishing up one of theirs. Sure. Um, Vermont has done a second. New Hampshire isn't doing a second. Okay. Um, Why is that? Yeah. Funding. Oh, okay. Yeah. That funding. Makes sense. They they thought just you know. With, with Christmas bird counts and summer counts and things like that. Okay. Um, yeah, our data is shared. Our data is going to be posted online for anybody to use. It's going to be there. Like the final product years ago was this thing called a book. Right, like a literal book. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's paper? <laughs> yeah, it's paper. You get paper cuts. Um, this is going to be posted on the internet for people to use. That's great. And if people need to take deep dives than, than what we have, I, they, they could probably touch base with some of the, the yeah, researchers. Yeah. And will they, they'll be doing any visualization with the data or things like that or just just the raw data and then maybe someone else will take that? Uh, well, it's going to show like trend from the from the last atlas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there should be some trending involved in that. Okay. Um, a lot of it's yes or no blocks. Is it possible breeding? Is it confirmed breeding? And there'll be a different color sure. uh, on that block. But what's really good about um, this atlas is you'll be able to click on a block and get a species list right. of what was seen there, whereas that type of granularity wasn't there before. Mm. That's so cool. That, That's good. That's good. That's I, I I would imagine it's it's like a really great buildup of of data in case uh, you're looking at legislation and bills on the docket or, or just, I guess, even down to code, building code and mm -hmm. things like that. And the... Yeah, because a common response for developers says, you don't have any proof that there's any birds yeah. here. You know, why should I hold off my project to fill in the salt marsh when you don't have any data? I said, oh, but we do. Yeah. I <laughs> that's, mean, I, that's why this is really, really important. I think of where, where we typically bird and how it's not there's a lot of unused area there and where where we usually go oh. i'm making like gestures because i don't, I don't like to, your gestures I, I, well we don't like to broadcast where we always are because no one's there and it's nice oh i got you you're hiding your patch yeah i'm hiding yeah, my patch our, our hidden that. patch wow yeah and um but it it is used by the state a little bit, but there's a lot of there's a lot of new building happening, and it's sort of like I kind of feel mm. not only that we're birding, but we're actually helping um, future projects maybe get stopped because no one's been birding there. Right. And I in a lot of times I, I you know these common species. Um, on eBird, when we when we uh, put them on, say they're rare, but only rare because no one's been birding here. Right. Right. It's a reporting issue. Right. So you know, there's a definite lack of reporting, and I don't know. It's it's made me think a lot more about 
how we should get out to other spots or if there are spots that we should be going to for mm-hmm. conservation, not just for getting a lifer. Right? I, uh, I've been, once the Atlas sort of came about, I, I don't have the time to stick to like one block. So I, you don't have the patience. Well, and I, but I also, I work in, will I work pretty far from where I live. So I split my time between two counties pretty far away. So I, you know, for me, I, I try and use eBird to look for, uh, parks or areas in between hotspots that don't Mm -hmm. have any records there and set up new hotspots and things like that and put, put species on record so that there's like some connection between locations and things like that and maybe get a better better uh variety or wider range to show range or bird ranges nesting ranges all these things but also i'm just you know in a little bit obsessed so i (laughs) go wherever (laughs) i can anytime so the thing is we are going to generate we are generating a lot of valuable data with this atlas project however it's not going to be totally conclusive with a lot of questions like one for example, by using eBird and having people record, let's say, a blue jay, they saw a pair, they saw it nesting, they saw the fledglings, to be able to record those levels, you could actually start to get an understanding of the phenology of that species. That's not our, the focus of the atlas, but down the road, somebody may be looking at that. Yeah. Um, also importantly is understanding of landscape ecology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cornell has done this study with their woodland thrushes. And as we start to divide up these woods, you start to have these edge effects. So cats Mm. and blue jays get into their nesting area and eat the eggs and eat the ticks. And so um, that's why you see these populations starting to decrease because people say, oh, there's plenty of woods, but it's fragmented. Right. Mm. So th- to answer the quality of um, the, the habitat is very important, and understanding yeah. the success of the breeding is also very important. Uh, and we may not be recording breeding success with the, with the atlas, but if somebody's saying, oh, we, we had fledglings, okay, that's, sure. that's pretty good. But it's still going to come across as being uh, confirmed breeding as equivalent as having a nest. Of course, yeah. But it, it's, a, you know, we're not really capturing a lot of that um, data to say nesting success. So um, so when it comes to uh, submitting to the atlas, it, could, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a full walking bird count, but you could just uh, submit data about um, breeding? Yes. Right. That's cool. Right. There's so much breeding happening <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> And it's, you know, and in and, and around the area that we know of, but we're so used to doing just the typical mm-hmm. walking bird count. Right. But from the Atlas perspective, if you see like a common yellow throat nest, you're, you're done counting common yellow throat. But it's also helpful if you re- report re- seeing as fledgling. Mm-hmm. Sure. But for that entire block, now you have confirmed breeding for that particular species. Yeah. Oh, great. And so you don't have to look for it anymore. Oh, so uh, that's helpful for tit mice. Once you see it confirming, you you could ignore it after Ooh. that. <laughs> oh, that's good to know for summer birding. Like yeah. you can take you. It, it makes sense. Like the I, you you give uh, time ranges right from your recording from June to August or something like that for the atlas. Uh, yeah. Uh, oftentimes, once uh, there, there's a breeding co- code called abandoned nest. Like it's sure. a nest that you know that was built that season 
and it's there and you you saw it yeah as opposed to a, a nest that's been beat up but once you're if if you're not seeing any other activity besides these abandoned nests yep your season's pretty much over so for those that are unfamiliar unfamiliar with eBird, you, I know that you can you can choose the breeding data um, when you go into the specific species that you're recording. Yep. But there, I, so there's a bunch of abbreviations and there's all these designations. You're saying abandoned nest. We've got you know there's the fledgling. There's all of these, but there yep. some of them are really hard to to like break down and at the moment like abandoned nest there's all of these is there a way for people to read what yeah, they we, all mean yeah we have um descriptions of those codes okay much more than what you would get on eBird. Oh, um, okay so chris elfick put that together he's the professor at yukon that okay. is one of the driving f uh, forces behind this atlas mm -hmm. uh he's done a lot of bird atlasing for you know in england nevada uh, a lot of so he has broken that down so you could go onto the website Cool. And check that out. Uh, what's the website? Um, ctbirdatlas.com. Cool. That's easy. So everybody <laughs> go check that stuff out so that you're using eBird. For those of you that are not using eBird and you think that technological birding is sort of taboo or something like that at the moment, just just dust off the cobwebs and shake it shake up your life and use eBird because <laughs> we're collecting so much data Cornell's been doing something great and now you have the opportunity to help to with like really in really small areas and show really important information mm -hmm. I, I yeah. will I, we we are 100% in support of Cornell and Good. eBird and for these reasons um I want to switch a little bit switch gears a little bit sure. you're from eBird to you, you mentioned thrushes and I know you work with Bicknell's yes. thrush. Bicknell? Bicknell? Bicknell's. Yeah. yeah, I never know how to pronounce these things. <laughs> There's a certain wren that I always get wrong and that I'm not going to even bother trying right now. Um, Carolina. <laughs> Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. Wren. Um, I confuse winter. that house. Winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, English as a first language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, so uh, talk about the Bicknell's a little bit. What's the, they're, uh, they're, increasingly rarer uh, because of ranges or loss of habitat loss of habitat loss of habitat oh, there it is. um <laughs> yeah Surprise. it's not so much loss of habitat on their breeding ground here it was really interesting um chris freemer is the driving ornithologist from vermont center of eco studies into the bicknell thrush uh, population he's really the one that has designed this protocol uh, some of the ski organizations were really concerned is like, what is your data going to show about <laughs> us putting tr uh, ski trails on these mountains? Oh, man. And so like, what is it, what's the data going to show? It's like the data may not show what you expect, but these birds prefer edge habitat. Sure. Mm -hmm. you know, when I say edge, I mean uh, they're up in the crumb hole, so the, the trees are like 10 feet lower. You know, down to the crumbholt size. When I say crumbholt, I'm right. talking about those gnarled uh, vegetation that yep. grows on the tops of mountains, and that's what they nest in. Okay. So oh. they're actually. I didn't know the term for that. Yeah, crumbholts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little German. Um, but the study showed that it actually helped uh, the these thrush, oddly enough. Oh. So. 
Yeah. Data's not always bad for industry. <laughs> or rich white people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who ski. You know, yeah. don't see a lot of minorities up there. No. You might see some Germans and Swiss, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying, I thought back to my skiing days. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. 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 That's true. Well, yeah, it's mixed. You have snowboarders and yeah, that skiers. snowboarders definitely have helped. <laughs> I haven't I haven't skied since like snowboarding was like a, almost a new thing on the mountain. Wow. Yeah. Just, I was little. That was a long time ago. My parents didn't have time for that. No. Nope. But, but um, yeah, Bicknells is being watched uh, closely. This yeah. um, mountain bird watch program goes. Jeez, I want to say twenty years. Mm-hmm. It's been around for quite some time. And so they have a lot of robust data uh, showing that there's been like a slight decline, but nothing that one would get worried about. But this is just in the study area. But where they breed is in the high elevations in the Adirondacks, the Green Mountains, the White Mountains, um, the the hills and the Maritimes. Because, you know, as you further north you go, as you know, Mm -hmm. the vegetation changes. Yep. Um, they were listed historically as breeding in the Catskills. I'm pretty sure that population isn't there anymore. Southern uh, New Hampshire, like around Mount Monadnock, they're not there anymore. So there's been some de- some decline. But the main concern is loss of habitat down like in Haiti, Dominican Republic. Okay. And these areas are being um, forested for agriculture. They have uh, national parks in the Dominican Republic that are being clear-cut illegally to grow avocados. And there's yeah, a... it's avocado toast, man. It's like <laughs> well, there goes that first theory about <laughs> skiing. <laughs> it's the uh, skiing and avocado toast, two really expensive things. <laughs> oh god! My son is single-handedly. Destroying the foresting. The forest, yeah. The He's an Republic. avocado monster. Yeah. Uh, I know, but they're so delicious. They're so delicious. But <sighs> there, there's there's got to be a healthy balance Eth- here. Ethically sourced <laughs> avocados is now going to have to become a thing. There are other good forms of getting fats in your diet. But uh, Bicknell's thrush isn't the only bird that's being watched. Sure. You know, uh, the other thrushes that are being watched for this is the hermit thrush, mm-hmm. which prefers more of a mixed. Mm-hmm. And then there's Swainson's that really is a specialist of the coniferous woods. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, are these deciduous trees going to ma- march up these mountains as climate changes? Mm. Are we going to see more hermit thrushes move into Swainson's territory? And likewise, are we going to see Swainson's start to move into the higher elevations mm-hmm. where the Bicknells are supposed to be? Sure. And to make matters worse, you have... Uh, these lumpers and splitters when it comes to drawing the lines with species they're yep. looking at bicknells again thinking that they may, may need to lump it back in with a grade sheet right you know you have dna analysis then you have habitat and territory distribution and i don't know how they're going to make a case to lump that back in you mean like that that they're the same bird for the longest time they were considered the same species oh. yeah. and then they got split out What's the marking difference? I'm not sure. Um, Do not they much. look different? No. Uh, it, it's funny. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that. They're very hard to, to tell apart. Yep. So these people from Vermont Center of Eco Studies, Chris Reamer and, and uh, his colleagues, they can ban during the fall, and he says he can't tell the difference between the two birds Even if it's not 
if when the populations are getting mixed, it's very hard to tell the difference. Yeah. It's a you, if you see them and hear them sing, you can distinguish typically, right? The one goes up, one goes down when they finish their song. Otherwise, mm -hmm. even the song almost sounds yeah, really yeah. close. It's such but a because hard their 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 breeding area is so discreet. Right. No, you're not going to mix them up. Yeah. Um, so I don't know uh, what they're basing lumping them back together unless it's just to sell more bird books. Yeah, which is... <laughs> everybody's got an agenda. <laughs> Have you been at a banding station? I've never been banding. That's something I want to do. There's, uh, during the fall, when um, the pin and axe flycatchers are coming oh, through... Oh, God. You the can't, trails. They got, yeah. Yes, they got to sing... And you got to see them on habitat in order to tell them apart. Yep. Have them in hand. You take all these measurements. Yeah. Run these algorithms. You, you'll get an answer. Yeah. That if the ratios of the measurements are such, it's one bird. If not, it's another. Or oftentimes there's this band of uncertainty. Unbelievable. <laughs> is this is just for alder and willow, or yes. is this all across the, the, the alder and willow? Just alder willow. Yeah, they have two different songs. Although they, I've heard, I've read something about maybe measuring primaries, but like you'd have to be side by side with two different birds, realistically, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's a lot of this data has been compiled um, okay. into Piles Guide, and right. it's a big, thick book yep. that Banders use that has this uh, excruciating detail <laughs> <laughs> and these formulas. Sean, Sean, are you just reading about birds like nonstop? Oh, I mean, yeah, I have a little, uh, yeah, I Because, like, been. I don't know. I don't, I don't been... really know what you guys are talking about. I've been birding longer than you, but, like, I don't read <laughs> the, uh, the material, I guess. The depth of my obsession has reached, has yeah. is boundless at the moment. I'm I, really seeing I've how been reading, deep it is. I've been actually doing a lot of reading on vermivora, on um so blue winged and golden winged oh, yeah. warblers I know and that... hybridization with uh. them, um, and and that has led me into interest in now trails, uh, which was split to willow and alder flycatcher. Um, I, I see alder in Maine, willows here, and that's mm -hmm. the only time, only way I know that which one is which is because I don't have to hear the other one singing or something like that. But um, even just the empids all all around, like yellow bellied, is hard to tell from uh, from any of the other yeah. ones, like realistically in the field, unless it's like the perfect yeah. mature male, mature spe uh, like uh, and, model there yeah, of the species. And, and yellow-bellied is a target species for mountain bird watch, yeah. but you're in this mountain habitat, it's not gonna be anything else. Yeah. So you hear it, but you know there have been times where I have, I've heard least, even though the books say it's gonna be a rare, rare bird in this area, I still get them. Yeah. But, yeah. Obviously, you got uh, bit by a serious bug. Oh my god! I did. I so, did. Now you kind of asked me um, in your questionnaire about bridging this this generational gap, yeah. and I think there may not be a bridge. Okay. <laughs> it may be that there's going to be individuals from all walks of life, all ages, that get triggered by birds. Yeah. And oh, that's Sean's it. been triggered. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was, I mean, you know, there's spark bird for me and my husband. Yeah. But, like, he's gotten, a, like, very 
hardcore case of the disease. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it did. I got bit by the And I feel bug. like Sean, you're just gonna you're gonna be the forefront of the next generation. Oh, I, d- I don't think that that I, I don't even so. no way. But the, I like I am certainly I have a really bad obsession, and I definitely can. My girlfriend Nicole can tell you that Scott Scott and I um, were birding yesterday, and I, he just told me he wanted to see a black Bernie, and we didn't know where we were going, but he hadn't seen a black Bernie uh. warbler. He's been around him a thousand times. And he'll tell the story too. And so we're walking through Troutbrook, and I, you know, I've been pouring through all of the Blackburnian data to see where, like, where the highest concentration had been in the last two or three days. And Troutbrook was the closest. And so we went and we're walking. And I was like, man, we're not gonna get this freaking bird. I'm gonna feel so bad. I dragged him, to, like, on this like five mile journey, like. Oh, out he to was the happy not to be around our nine month old for a little while. <laughs> and, <laughs> but we got phenomenal views you know they have four different songs that they sing and i had to go through my like what i remember hearing and it was the last like the most uncommon i think of all of their songs this one blackburn it was the most brilliant male too just singing and Uh, it was only like 20 feet on an exposed bow we had it for long enough to have a couple of people walk up on us and we had to point it out to some other folk and it was phenomenal. And that's like, but, you know, I spent like probably an hour trying to figure out where the highest concentration of Black Bernians were close to New Haven. And that was where I we went. Was, like, yeah. I, I wish know. there was a better, I mean, I, eventually eBird will be better about that. But that's something that I've done in the past on eBird to try to figure out concentrations of things that I've wanted to see in the wear and kind of narrowing it down. I think eventually they'll have time to. Yeah, the interface yeah. is still challenging. Yeah, that's still, okay. Yeah. yeah, coming from someone who designs UIs for a living, I'm like, this could be so much better. Yeah. Yeah, the technology has really changed the game. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, we have a lot of different types of, of birders out there. You know, New Haven Bird Club has a lot of different types of birders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a life list. I think anybody who's somewhat serious has a life list. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a month list. I don't think I'm keeping a state list anymore. Uh, I prefer to travel. I'd rather see the bird on its own grounds um, as opposed to... During migration. Yeah, migration's yeah. kind of neat. You know, you know migration's important, but, but to... It's a spectacle. But to chase. <laughs> you know, I'd rather, like, you know, we were getting um, the the bay breasted the other day on a, on a, a New Haven Bird Club trip yep. to Hanson Park, and we were really good views but you know that's only like a few days out of the year yeah. that you're going to get them i'd rather go up to where they're breeding and yeah. just be in their their habitat yeah um you know I've, I've done some bird travel and um years ago we've had a townsend solitaire show up you know bringing around to thrushes here sure. <laughs> and show show up in sleeping giant and kind of think well this is ideal habitat for him if it were out west yeah but most of the town sense that I've had has been out west. Yeah. Uh, like, um, for example, call it, uh, the Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm-hmm. There's some areas where they're all over the place there. And that's where I'd rather, like, see them and be in their, their habitat. Yeah. That way. Where have you traveled? Uh, let's see. I used to travel a lot because um, my, my job, and they would have these customer education conferences in different parts of the country. So Finally uh, making use of that. Yep. So I would have this week-long conference, would show up a few days earlier or leave a few days late and go birding the Everglades or go to Big Bend or um, 
go see the uh, the Gunnison sage grouse oh. when I was in Colorado um, in the piney gra- grasslands. So I was able to to travel that way. But I've made some bird specific trips to the Pribilovs and Finland. Okay. Um, so that. Uh, What's wow. your favorite place that you've traveled to? That I traveled to. She says it's unfair question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we H like has. to ask this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always leave feeling like I haven't seen anything, so I feel frustrated whenever I leave. But I got a kick out of the Privilofs, but that was um, my. I brought my wife on to that trip, and she didn't have the the best time. <laughs> oh. um, it's hard when you're a mixed couple. Like uh, Sean is a a mixed couple when it comes to bird watching. Is your wife a birder? She likes to watch birds. She enjoys birds, but she does not go on trips. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this trip to the Pribilovs, um, the the group of people that were there, some of them were from Anchorage, some of them were from um, Fairbanks. They will go out there, so in the middle of the Bering Sea, to get these birds getting blown off course from Siberia. (sighs) We had a weather system that was blowing from the North Pole. So this is late May, early June. Mm -hmm. My wife is wired to think that late may early june should be flowers and same yeah <laughs> rhododendrons I, th- I would have a hard bloom. time with that trip i am not <laughs> so, <laughs> i don't really like the cold so we woke up the horizontal snow oh <laughs> yeah i no, don't tromping yeah. along, around looking for long spurs no thank you, you No, know, but the cliffs full of alcids and yeah so, uh, so you're looking at these all these different types of puffins and mirrors oh. on, on these cliffs and meanwhile you hear this bellowing down from the beach which is the first seal male staking out his claim yeah you know it was it was fascinating but uh, you know freezing w- wonderful moments <laughs> yeah it's it's freezing but it was just around like 32 degrees where the snow wasn't melting it just raw with raw. The wind that cuts right through you there's know. been times where we've gone to Hammonasset like my um my in-laws love to walk the beach and it's just been like cold and and raw and i will just stay in the car like i am i am an avid birder but the the adversity you know to cold Uh, will yeah will get me i think i was pregnant the last time too so i was you know i was like you know what (laughs) my my favorite time to go to sandy point is like uh february when it's snowing that's the you know, you get the best waterfowl yeah, when it's snowing. Yeah. They come close to shore, and you can you know you don't need a scope to like see all this good yeah. stuff. You get tons of scoffs and all sorts Point of stuff. Yeah. Is wonderful. I was yeah. there this morning. Yeah, I like great. it with the uh, with the peeps coming through. Mm. There's so That's many cool. least sandpipers there right now, and Ooh. so many. I saw m- multiple piping plovers this morning. Oh, semi palmateds. So oh, okay, uh, they're coming had, in, they're coming through. I had my first. It's Sora. on. It's on. <laughs> There was a Sora there. This really? Yeah. Which one's Sandy Point? Sandy Point's the one that looks out across at um, uh, Lighthouse Point at the mouth of the New Haven, like the yeah, it's, the mouth it's of west, the harbor. Yeah, it's West Haven. Yeah. But okay. it ju- juts out into New Haven Harbor. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. It's really nice. I get my, my, all my points mixed up. I know Lighthouse Point. Yeah, And then yeah. it's like, uh, I don't know. So Lighthouse and Sandy point to each other. They like form the mouth of yeah. the New Haven yeah, Harbor. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're um, talking about. And there, it's like always fishing, but there's so many. There's two pairs of, of oyster catchers like there right now, and everything's on this. Tons of least turns. It was oh, great. Nice. Wow. Yeah, it's alive there right now. I was very surprised this morning. Multiple, I had like five or six different clappers yelling at each other. Wait, wow. I got there early enough, so 
it was a great morning at Sandy Point. It's time. The the warblers might be almost gone, but right, the, right. the the shorebirds are here, are coming in now. So that's cool. I'm excited about that. I enjoy this time of year yeah. a lot. So yeah, then they're all on their breeding territory. It's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, so, so if you haven't been to the Pribilovs, I recommend that trip. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Are you going to ask your infamous question? Because um, we're pretty, I don't know, we've been, it's 11. Yeah, we've been going I just got a, a reminder while. to change my hummingbird feeder. I think this is a good time to remind people that people should change their hummingbird feeder every oh, yeah, four to five days or so yeah. and to clean it out. And do the four to one solution of sugar and water. Wash your jelly cups for your Orioles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I we are. I'm ashamed that our, we were like, why is no one coming to our feeder now? One, probably the screech owl. Yeah, it probably has a lot to do with it. Two, yeah. the seed was moldy, mm. so mm. I had to do a deep clean of our bird feeder. But you caught it, and that's good. Most people just put seed right back on top of it. And oh no, it yeah. So I just yeah, you got to be careful because there there's some diseases that can be harmful. Absolutely. Oh yeah, we see it with like the finches, the goldfinch a lot, right? With like diseases on their bills and stuff like someone, that. Someone someone posted a bunch of dead hummingbirds. Oh yeah, they're... on the CT bird group on Facebook, and that that's what put the fear in me of changing my feeder and making like a an alert to do that. And I didn't know they had to be yeah. that often. Yeah, I feel there's a certain responsibility. If you're going to feed birds, you got to take care of that, you know, guard against stray cats coming into your backyard that's going to prey on on your bird feeders and make sure that things are clean, that they're not going to get any diseases. And a little research on the seeds that you're putting out too. Mm-hmm. I mean, thistle goes thistle goes bad really fast and you'll notice your your thistle feeder will stop emptying because it's probably just yeah. stale uh yeah you know put safflower out because the squirrels don't want the safflower typically and you'll get all sorts of cool species with the safflower yeah. but you know platform feeders are a really good way to go instead of tube feeders and stuff because they're yep. easier to keep clean and you'll get a huge variety showing up if you can keep the squirrels off of it so yeah um well, so I, we probably we probably are running a little long here. Mm-hmm. Okay. But do you have a favorite bird? Is that an, another unfair question? And you you mentioned winter finches in yeah. your bio, and um, yeah, I guess my favorite bird, if there is such a thing, would probably have to be the evening grosbeak because that was oh. my trigger bird. Oh, probably, cool. I think I was in third grade. Third oh, grade wow. with an evening grosbeak. Third, third grade. Now back then, this is when people complained about them that they would come in and wipe out your feeder in a matter of minutes because the flocks were so loud and noisy and big. Um, My first feeder experience, I took an old Clorox bottle, (laughs) cut out part of it, tacked it to a post on the porch and put the ends of the the bread with peanut butter on it. And and the first bird were these evening grosbeaks that came out. It was like a snowy background and just kind of set this winter idyllic for me. Um, mm. old family friend she lived in Newport, Vermont which out of her back door you know, you could throw a rock and hit Canada and <laughs> she would get some very interesting birds at her feeder you know, like siskins that. and red poles and crossbills and things like that wow. so her, her her feeder was incredible, I was a little further south wow. um, but still you know, I, I didn't have any money for bird seed <laughs> What drove you to do the birds? Was it like your parents wanted to 
teach you about birds or did you it was self self-interest uh, my hometown of St. Johnsbury, Vermont, has uh, an old Victorian uh, museum of natural history. Oh, cool. Back in the day when people were blasting birds and taking yeah. it to a taxidermist. So it is full of mounted birds. And it was the main weather station. And this curator there who would give the weather report would play a bird song before he would give the weather. OG bird note <laughs> moments. The original bird note. The original bird note. And... Um, so that that guy uh, actually kind of listening to him in the morning wow. got me interested, and I started looking more, but I didn't have binoculars, so it was like, what was I hearing? What was I seeing? So it kind of got me interested at a pretty young age. That's cool. Yeah, little things like that can make a big difference. Yeah. And look what he started. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, hey, yeah, it's... Um, you got your hands on every... It seems like every inch of Connecticut birding and conservation, I think, in your list in your bio. You have COA, the Bird Club. I mean, you're dealing with the Mountain Mountain Project and yeah, Mountain Bird Watch mountain bird through Watch. Vermont Center of Eco Studies. Uh, what else are you? Who else are you working with? Uh, let's see. We're friends of Stuart B. McKinney. Sure. Um, pretty active in that. Is there affiliation with Long Beach with Stuart B. McKinney? They're close proximity, correct? Uh, Yes, very, very, uh, very close. That's uh, Great Meadows okay. that, that you're thinking about. You know, yep. we we just built the blind. Uh, members of the New Haven Bird Club awesome. stepped up and bird, uh, built the blind. So there's going to be two blinds oh, great. Uh, on that site um, pretty soon. We, it's at the main headquarters up in Westbrook. We just have to break it down and install it. So awesome. that's going to look over oh. one of those salt pans. So hopefully we'll get some interesting birds so out there. So cool. Oh, great. Um, what else am I? I'm involved in the Hamden Land Trust. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I serve as a, on the Commission for Natural Resources and Open Space in the town of Hamden as well. That's great. So it's whatever you can do to protect Yeah. <laughs> protect an acre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, protecting an acre, especially around here, is a big deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. an acre's hard to come by in yep. Connecticut. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah. We've sold out, they sold off all the farmland, so everything is these small lots. Especially with the migration um, around here, you know, it's so active that even just an acre would make a difference. It does make a it difference. It does, it does. Yeah. I mean, backyards, if you have a quarter acre, you can, you know, you have a big, really big backyard and you, you really can use native plants and do all yeah. of these things to help. Feeders, native plants, like it's little acts, yeah. little acts that go a long well, way well, with conservation. One of the large programs going on that was initiated by um, Audubon Connecticut, yep. which is the chapter of National Audubon. Don't confuse Connecticut Audubon with Audubon Connecticut. Oh, They're two I, separate yeah. entities. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that there's two, and I, I was like, these seem like two different things. Yeah, they, they are. Uh, Audubon, Connecticut is the chapter, state chapter of National Audubon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Connecticut Audubon is like Mass Audubon. It's just specific to the state. They I have see. a lot of great properties. They just had a big migration festival this past weekend. They, they do a lot yes. of good. But um, Audubon, Connecticut has a schoolyard habitat urban oasis program, which mm-hmm. the uh, New Haven Bird Club has jumped into. I'm really happy to see that where in some of these underserved school areas that they are planting um, natural habitat oh. that will attract birds. Spe- it's, they're not going to nest here. Right. In those, but it's small garden drawn. patches, but it's going to be pr- producing a lot of food. And hopefully it's going to get some kids triggered. Um, yeah. We just were down at Mamaguan School in uh, East Haven, and That's we great. brought out 
third and fourth graders, two separate days. You know, we got a grant from COA yeah. for binoculars, so these little kids are, are getting these binoculars in, and they're getting triggered by starlings, of all things. Right. I mean, it's a pretty <laughs> bird if you don't know how annoying they are. Yeah, I mean, I don't, who, I, I don't care, like, what bird it is. Right. A little kid getting psyched on on any animal and any and, animal. and changing yeah. their mind about the way you know yeah seeing them through things. binoculars yeah. too it's like you know to actually see a starling yeah. and look at those shimmering feathers yeah. on, on that bird little yeah you know we markings. have mixed feelings about it but to say oh it's called a starling because those look like stars yeah. and mozart had one Who's Mozart? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we lost you on the Mozart. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Maybe Bieber had one. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we're just kidding. He probably has a tattoo of one. I'm sure he does. Might as well. Yeah. Um, what's the future for the Bird Club look like? And what's your future with the Bird Club now that you're stepping down? I will stay on the board. I have taken over as the outdoor uh, program director ah. so I book all of the like you have to email lots of people yeah so I arrange all of the field trips for the upcoming year yeah okay um, oh, cool you know so if there's places people want to see or go to you know they'll contact me so I'll line up a trip leader to do it make sure the directions are out there and and kind of re- report wow. results we should so do a, we should do a foul mouths New Haven bird club trip organize something like podcasts and stuff like that do something cool like that yeah. with them that'll be fun but i think it's a good hands um i i think the club kind of runs itself yep. we have some really good people that are dedicated so we really are starting to interface a lot more with uh, local conservation efforts like get becoming a partner of the urban oasis program mm-hmm. we did that about three years ago um, yeah, that's great um so we are really getting back to uh, our, our roots. You know, you know, I said earlier what, you know, it takes all types of people. Yeah. You know, for the longest time, it's been, you know, where to, uh, the, the club emphasis was on where to go, to go birding, what the state lists were, trips to see that. Um, conservation was somewhat there, but it was more, Sure, it, it was a casual. And when we first got started off, there was a huge emphasis on, Education, mm-hmm. and you know, we're kind of coming back to that with That's this good. program to support the local high schools. Well, not high school, high schools soon, I hope, but you know, grade <laughs> schools. But that, that's a lot of effort. You know, we're we're volunteers, so sure. you know, we're limited to how much time that we have yeah, that we spend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think it's in good hands, you know, and um, really hope to see some young people come into it. But this is something that we always worry about. It's like, where's the next generation? Yeah, it seems like every other year we have a long discussion at the board. Like, oh my God, you know, we got to get new, new, younger people involved. But realize, well, well, we're fulfilling our mission. You know, we're reaching out to people and getting them triggered. They may not join the club, they may not become leaders of the club, but they could go someplace else and help birding and bird conservation overall. And that's that's a cool message to send out too. If you you don't have to be part of something specific, but you should be part of of even mm-hmm. as, as a whole yep. to get get involved if you're at all interested or care all about the future of of the world for your kids for you for whoever for the birds for wh- whatever's driving you it's important to get involved it's yep. where um how, how do how do people find the bird club uh they could go right on on the internet new haven yep. bird club 
com. It's, it's easy. <laughs> it's right there. That's and you, it, uh, there's software embedded where you can generate an, an email that will come to us and respond to whatever questions. Great. So, and uh, we post on COA uh, as far as the calendar. Sure. All of our programs, outdoor, indoor, is free and available, free and open to the public. Mm-hmm. So it's really everything we could do to get people triggered locally. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're 100, you know, we stand for sure behind it. I know Heather, Heather's got a young birder upcoming, yeah. and it's, this is like this important stuff, you know. People people like Heather and Scott who have this little kid who's already showing great enthusiasm for being mm. outside. Like Children are drawn to animals, yeah. Yeah. and it's just up to us to um, show respect yeah. and learn how to respect the animals Absolutely, and yeah. and and just you know give them more information you know yeah. it's also important for our own mental health yes. you know we could go through our really stressful busy lives and i was at the um, car wash down in new haven and there's a gentleman there working he just seemed like he was stressed and i'm holding my scope because i don't want to have that get sent through and he has, uh, was asking me about it I said you know birding so, is that relaxing? And I'm detecting from him that he might have a stressful <laughs> life that he may need to spend a few minutes um, uh, just to be in nature to yeah. see a bird pop out for him. Uh, I had an experience when back when I was working as a chef many years ago. I was in Stanford, really close to 95. You know, it's just a toxic work environment. Oh, yeah. And been there really really (laughs) yeah that's why i work from home (laughs) there you go really really stressful and i was outside by the dumpster uh a tree of heaven weed tree growing there and there was a house finch singing and i just took a moment and said okay here's a little slice of of where we should be but this is exactly what i need to hear right now to help ground me you know take me out of that stressful moment and and just get me through the rest of the day and if i was not aware of what a house finch was and what i was paying attention to knowing that oh they came in from the west and they were pets and blah 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 without understanding that backstory i probably would have overlooked that particular bird that was (laughs) you know, saving me during that day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, stress reduction was a huge reason how we got into birding. Like, you know, it became our weekend thing, our weekend stress release. And then um, when we got bird, um, the bird uh, feeders while James was like in the thick of colic, <laughs> um, you know, you're getting screamed at by a baby for hours a day. And just having like a couple birds on the bird feeder and then we got like a red breasted nuthatch and white breasted really yeah it was crazy and um that was huge we you could like feel the stress like (laughs) lifting away and we had some joy and then like you know we had the babysitters here and they'd be like what's that and we're like well that's a red breasted nuthatch and actually that's not really common to see so close up you know and you know and it's funny how it gets out. stressful when that warbler you're in the treetop doesn't show itself and people are swearing under their breath. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, yeah. it, it's stress-reducing sometimes, but I, will, I, um, I love migration madness, but I am I'm very happy that I can stop worrying about what warbler I'm not seeing at yeah. East Rock at the moment. And I don't feel the twitch coming on uh, as hard once the end of May comes around. So um, I think 
birding is is a great stress reliever for me 11 months of the year but in in may i just lose my freaking mind so yeah, yeah. This has been a rather... I think Scott can attest to that. Yeah. The Blackburnian was this last Oh, I watched watched the stress relief, like, melt off Off of Scott Scott when that Blackburnian... He was, Uh. like, he was so giddy. For me, there's, like, I'm not a... I don't guide. I've only been... I haven't been birding that long, but I can see where guiding is, like, this great... Oh, it's so much fun. In that, like, seeing someone get a lifer, especially something like that, oh, like yeah. this, like, long-storied lifer. You know, Blackburnians don't come that low. And when they do, oh, man. Like, even the most, like, seasoned biologist, when something like that shows up, like, in at, like, eye level, like, you just, you lose your mind. And mm-hmm. Scott, for the first time, like, seeing this, it was it was so cool to watch that kid, watch him, like, melt. Yeah. Just, like, melt into a puddle of awe with his blackberry. Mm-hmm. It was great. When my son was five, um, we homeschooled uh, for a little bit and thought that we would do this Cornell uh, forested bird study, and which was focusing on, on thrushes. So we went into East Rock to hope to get um, the, the wood thrushes there and who knows, anything mm-hmm. else. And we're sitting in the woods, we're just waiting to see if we hear something, following the protocol. Yep. And a rose-breasted <laughs> rosebeak showed up. And he hollers, Dad, look. And, of course, the bird flew <laughs> <laughs> away. <laughs> so, yeah, they could be exciting. Yeah. We, have a, we have a friend who uh, will be listening, and she knows who she is. But every, she has to hold herself back every time she sees a wood duck. The first time she finally saw a wood duck... She screamed, wood duck! And then, of course, they took off. And so every time we we are out with her, we have to be like, and we see a wood duck, we're like, all right, calm down. Uh, there's a wood yeah. duck. But there's a wood duck. Just be really quiet. Yeah. We're whispering. We shouldn't be whispering. Scott would I know. I'm sorry, yeah. Scott. Sorry, sorry. sorry Scott. Um, so uh, I like to, I personally have this one question that I've been asking everybody. I'm going to keep asking everybody until it gets really old. And as it, from a conservationist, you're the first conservation-minded person that's been on, like, specifically, is the ivory-billed woodpecker gone, or, or are you a believer? Um, it's funny, watching the the back and forth in the literature back when it was first cited, and yeah. uh, Richard Prum came out with, um, yeah. it's like, I'm really not believing it. Um, I kind of feel it's not there. Yeah, I, I think we have drained those those wetlands down there so much, and the encroachment, and the fact that we just really don't have bona fide um, data, yeah, uh, and, and evidence. I really, I would like to say yes, it's there, but I I, I really really doubt it. You know, the, and that's the issue with with sightings like this. You yeah. know, there's really no degree of falsifiability. It's like I you could say I saw a red-breasted nuthatch, but Who's going to disprove me? You know, yeah. there's no evidence. But if you have a photograph or a recording, but the the photograph, you know, sure it was. Yeah, <laughs> as, there's, as, there's as a lot of hard to believe <laughs> stuff going on with that with that bird. Like I think every pretty much so so far everybody has said, said the same. Like man, it would be great, but I I just don't think. And yeah, so I I don't yeah. know where I didn't know anything about it until you started asking. Yeah. and then I looked up the Wikipedia article, and as someone who can Photoshop and does a lot of photo manipulation i was like this is so hinky it could hinky. Hinky. <laughs> they were they were so abundant down there too that 
Audubon talks about how delicious they were. Oh, yeah. Because he'd chew them, he'd stick his wires into them, then he'd paint them, and Loved it. then he'd eat them. Wow. And so he ate a lot of ivory bills. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say they went extinct because John James Audubon well, ate them all. He was a hungry person. I mean, this is like when Scott would come <laughs> in with a false bird fact about, like... Single-handedly yeah. consuming all of the ivory-billed woodpeckers <laughs> left in the world. He was a hungry person. <laughs> Man. Awesome. Well... Thank you so much for, for doing this. Was, this was a lot more exciting. When he said that he got the president of the New Haven Bird Club, I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> Boring. Yeah, I'm like, oh. Old stodgy white guy gonna, without the shotgun. How are we going to fill the hour? <laughs> um, but no, this has been incredibly uh, insightful. It's been great to learn a lot more about the history, and I never knew anything about all of that so um when is that little is it a booklet like where will it be it, it's a book um well we're still going back and forth as far as its production mm-hmm. um so hopefully within the year everything's written it's just a matter of the final Compiling. proofreading and you know making sure people are using the oxford comma right <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in that stage but, it, oh, but it's, it's all written um but yeah, talking about the history of the club, you have to talk about what the milieu was at the time that the club came into being, yeah. and you know we kind of capture all of those elements in our early history. That's great. So. That's awesome. That's yeah. really interesting. Well, thank you so much. Like you said, and we've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, so good. It was good. Say hi to Lori for me. I will. <laughs> hi, Lori. We're talking about you on the air. <laughs> this is my bird blind buddy. Oh, okay. I wanted to make sure we got to say her name at least once. So. Yes. Um, I'll uh, pay my dues, I promise. I'll join. Please. There we go. Look at that. We did our job. One new member. $15, dirt cheap. Yep. Um, thanks again, everybody. Check out the New Haven Bird Club, Foul Mouse Podcast. We really appreciate you being on here. Yep. Thanks, Thank Craig. you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Craig Repass. We hope you found it as engaging and informative as we did. If you're interested in learning more about the Vermont Center for Eco Studies, you can read all about them at vermontecostudies.org. As always, we appreciate your comments and questions about anything mentioned in the podcast. You can write to us at info at foulmouthspodcast.com or leave a comment on the podcast page.